HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking with Tom Philpot, one of my very, very favorite guests. I like to, I'd like to have Tom almost every week if I could, but I know that isn't right, so I don't. But I mean, really, honestly, um, he is the best. So Tom is, in case you're not familiar, he is the food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones magazine. And he is also the author of Perilous Bounty, the looming collapse of American farming and how we can prevent it. That's a must read, people, a must read now in paperback. Um, so if you haven't gotten a copy, please get one and read it. Honestly, you will, uh, your, your jaw will drop, your eyes will open wide, and you will learn an awful lot. So Tom, um, I, I, call, I contacted you because you had a, little, a short piece in Mother Jones about the Investment Recovery Act and the, the bits of it that pertain to food and agriculture. And one of the things that jumped out, as you said, the good news was that there was a lot of money for conservation stewardship programs, um, which have already tr been funded for, oh, I don't know, a few decades, right? Um, but the fact that the program has been expanded enormously um, will have, I hope, a very big impact on the nation's uh, soil content and soil um, uh, recovery, shall we say. So talk about uh, that for a little bit and tell us what we can expect. Yeah, so the Inflation Recovery Act, you know, I think we think of it mostly as a climate bill. Um, it was a way to get Joe Biden, you know, I'm sorry, it was a way to get Joe Manchin to right. sign off on a climate bill, um, you know, and also it's funded by some 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 uh, tax increases. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of compromising going on here. Yes. And, you know, I think basically the outline of the bill is to try without regulation to get the whole economy to move away from fossil fuels by setting up a bunch of carrots yeah. uh, to get existing industries to do better. Uh, most of them are about electric utilities, but as I noted in my piece, there are some in there for agriculture. Yeah, um, There was a, a 
fairly significant expansion of a um, of a couple of the programs. Uh, so it puts tw- the IRA puts twenty billion dollars over ten years into USDA conservation programs. Um, right. And the biggest one of those, the most important one, I think, is the conservation stewardship program. And it, you know, it, it pays farmers to, you know, it basically def- helps farmers defray some costs from doing some things that would be good for the environment. Things like planting cover crops. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are, are, you know, big portions of the Midwest where soil erosion happens every year because ground is kept uncovered. It's a very highly erodible land. And we know where that land is. And and so this, pro, you know, these programs would potentially pay farmers to put it in permanent um, perennial, you know, stuff like grass, um, you know, all year round, take it out of production. And there isn't a lot of incentive to do that currently. So this would give, you know, programs that would pay them to do it to give them, them incentives. Right. And and all that's really good. And so we're we're talking about um, you know, basically over the next four years, the current budget for the conservation reserve program is about 1.8 billion. So this is going to add over the next four years only uh, 3.5 million, uh, 3.5 billion dollars. Uh, so that's a huge that's increase. A that's yeah, that's basically tripling the the budget, um, and, and you know that's good. Um, I have to say that there are a lot of problems with this approach. Um, you know, one of them is that you know basically U.S. farm. I didn't get it, get into this in my piece, but like U.S. farm policy puts a lot of money into, you know, propping up, you know, the fact that in the Midwest, farmers essentially plant two crops, and that's corn and soybeans. Right. And this, there's a lot of money going into propping that up, billions of dollars. This, this doesn't, you know, tell them they have to change that or try to make them change that. It's essentially softening the blow of how environmentally destructive that is. And and I wrote about it at length in my book, Perilous Bounty. Um, But so, so this is like a, a fairly minor, you know, improvement over the status quo. But the status quo, it's not changing the fact that the status quo uh, remains is, the status quo. <laughs> it, it remains the status quo, exactly. And I think it gets at, um, you know, something that I, I think that we'll make a bit of a theme of in this episode. And that is that the Biden administration in general, and I think mostly pushed into this corner by Joe Manchin, who has got all this power because, you know, he's essentially the deciding vote in the Senate. Yes. Um, the basic policy towards climate change is, okay, we can't push an actual regulation through. We can't tell utilities that they have to use less coal and gas. Um, but what we can do is is create carrots to, uh, you know, incentivize them to use more wind and, and solar and something ser- similar is going on here with agriculture there's you know it's not even in the public debate to tell farmers that you can't use practices that erode soil or lead to polluted water right um what we will do is we'll throw you some money to sort of mitigate some of that stuff and that's where we are here and i think in the biden administration there are some people who understand that you need more de- decisive action on climate change. But in the agriculture department, 
Mr. Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, the USDA secretary, is not one of those people. He's very dedicated to this all carrots, no sticks approach. He is. And of course, he's a former governor of Iowa himself. Um, so corn and soy are a big part of that economy. And he certainly isn't going to do anything that's going to change that status quo. Let's talk a little bit about the fact, because I really want to get to this partnerships for climate smart commodities. Um, but I, I do want to address another thing that was uh, that you brought up in your piece. Um, it looks like black farmers or, or you know people of color will finally get the assistance that was promised to them in the American Rescue Plan, but which was then thwarted by lawsuits that alleged, quote unquote, discriminatory racial preferences. I, I'm not even going to touch that. It's so insane. Explain how the roadblocks have been averted. And then also talk just for a minute about some of the history of racial discrimination in terms of loans and land grabbing and, you know, an inability to secure title to your land. Because I don't think that many Americans are really aware of just how uh, many decades, if not centuries, this bias uh, to, against um, people of color and farming has been going on. And then also, um, and of course, I asked the like multi-part question. I'm such an idiot. But any, um, but the USDA has a long history of discrimination. So I, you know, sort of tie that thread, those threads together for us, would you, Tom? Sure. Um, so yeah, it is. I've, I've done a couple of articles in the past couple of years on this. And yeah. It is a really shocking story. It's, it's, sort of worse it's one of those things that's when you look at it deeply it's worse than you think yeah uh, and you know what the situation is is you know basically the civil war ends uh, slavery is over the southern landholders have, have been you know sort of uh, farm owners have been have had their their labor liquidated their sort of labor their chattel labor liquidated Right. And, and so there's this potential for to address the, you know, just the hor the horrific crime of slavery. There's this potential um, to, you know, basically as reparations for that right then and there in 1865 to grant land to uh, formerly enslaved people. Um, and in fact, that that actually, you know, as everyone knows, that happened in 1865, the whole um Forty acres and a mule order right. was re really a um, a massive tract of land, um, you know, basically from you know some distance in from coastal Florida. I'm sorry, from coastal Georgia all the way down to central Florida was going to be you know forty acre plots given to uh, formerly enslaved African Americans, and it wasn't even going to be the only bit of land reform that happened. It was sort of the the first um, part of it. And of course, you know, Lincoln gets assassinated. Um, the guy who takes over is a, you know, just very pro-slavery figure. And uh, Reconstruction, this is a centerpiece of Reconstruction. He sets about gutting Reconstruction, you know, basically from the beginning. So that never happened. But really by miracle, um, freed slaves in the post-Civil War era built up over the next 60 years, uh, pretty substantial land holdings. Uh, and it mm -hmm. was basically people banding, to, you know, banding the resources together, forming cooperatives, helping each other out. Yes. Um, and, you know, and this is through the period of like the just KKK and just brutal That's right. um, racist backlash against them. And so you get to, to 1920 and, um, Black Americans own now. I'm gonna. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but over a hundred million acres of farmland. Um, you know, around um, 19, you know, mid 1920s, 
Right. And what happens then, and I think this is the, the part of the story that often gets lost. So this, what the decades to come are the decades of the industrialization of agriculture, right? The, the scaling right. up, the switch from, you know, uh, horsepower um, plows to mechanical tractors powered by gasoline and d- later diesel and um, and, uh, you know, um, you know, buying expensive hybrid seeds, using a lot more chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides. So the U.S. farm system is in this period of scaling up and the USDA was right in the middle of that. And so what the USDA is, is promoting that and what they're doing is they're um, giving lots and lots and lots of loans to farmers that are guaranteed by the federal government saying, you know, borrow this money buy these seeds, invest in these pesticides, invest in this tractor, um, you know, scale up. If, you're, if your neighbor's going to sell out and doesn't want to do this, then, you know, you buy, your, buy their land and, and scale up. And uh, so this process is happening, but the USDA, uh, you know, so most of this African-American-owned farmland is in the U.S. South. And the USDA is very, um, these, you know, it's farm, you know, the, the farm loan programs of the USDA are very localized. There's county offices. That's right. And these, these county offices systematically shut out African-American farmers. Right. And so what happened, so the USDA has got its fingers all over this. And so if you're an African-American farmer, suddenly your neighbor, their yield is skyrocketing because they've you know, they've been able to use these industrial means to, to grow their food. Uh, so prices for commodities are plunging. You can't compete on um, on price. Uh, you're getting undercut. Uh, you can't make your costs. Um, you try to go get a loan to get your tractor and, you know, they won't even listen to you. Right. And so what you get um, starting around, you know, 1930 is this systematic um dispossession of farmland by, um, you know, by the, driven by the USDA happening to African-Americans. And it, you know, basically wiped out all but something like 15 million acres of uh, of farmland owned by African-Americans in this period. And, you know, it's a, it's a double crime because not only are you, not only was this land taken away, um, but this very land exploded in price. So if you're a white family who has, you know, owned land in Iowa or someplace like that uh, for over 100 years and, you know, you've, you've financed your way into getting more and more land, you have a, a bigger piece of land, you're now sitting on an investment, uh, you, know, uh, you know, basically an asset that's worth millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You can use that to you know, fund your kid's education. You can use it to fund your vacation to Florida or your second home in Florida. Sure. Um, all these things, uh, you know, basically, in you know, investing in, in things that create more wealth. And this is completely taken out from under African-Americans in this period. And so that kind of gets us up to date with the story. I'm, you know, making the long story very short, but, you know, basically, with this crime in mind, this sort of systematic dispossession, um, there have been a movement in the, in the past couple of years to get um, debt relief to present day existing African-American farmers, the remnant who are able to hold out in this sort of um, century long dispossession. 
Um, and so a lot of a lot of folks have um, they, they've got debt and you know under not very good terms from the USDA. They got smaller loans. Um, they've had trouble paying them off. You know, various farm crises. You know, we were in a really brutal farm crisis, sure. as you know, um, during during the pandemic. Um, yeah, of course. You know, uh, and, and also in the years leading up to the pandemic, just low commodity prices. Um, and so there, so Cory Booker comes up with this broader plan called the Justice for Black Farmers Act that included an incredibly ambitious bill. Um, never got anywhere in the Senate, but right. it included $5 billion in debt relief for black farmers. Um, that later got into one of the COVID relief bills of 2021. Right. Um, it passed. It was going to happen. 2021, black farmers were told you're going to get your, your debt or at least a, a big portion of your debt wiped out this year. Uh, and then, you know, just some really racist sort of culture war type uh, forces took the took up this battle, and you know we're we're basically like um, white farmers are being discriminated against. Yeah, you know, here's five billion dollars that you can't get your paws on, um, and they <laughs> drummed up this um, this sort of culture war and launched a bunch of lawsuits. And yep. a couple of those lawsuits, you know, they they did. Uh, I did I have a piece on this. They they did. A really good job of, of venue shopping, finding sympathetic, you know, Trump or George W. Bush appointed judges, and basically got these programs frozen. And so this debt relief was, um, you know, has been frozen ever since, and ca causing just incredible frustration in this community. And um, and so you know, Booker has been working on a solution to it, and. Um, he got in, you know, by the skin of his teeth into this inflation, um, this inflation reduction act. He got, um, he got in um, a total of five billion dollars that will go to debt relief for, uh, I think the language is socially disadvantaged farmers, and and so basically what they did was they they took racial language out of. Um, out of the the equation and just made right. it about socially disadvantaged farmers. And that there is a, a big overlap between black farmers and socially disadvantaged farmers, just, you know, people really behind in their on their debt payments. And so a big portion of this five billion dollars will go to African-American farmers. And from what I've uh, heard and talking to people, it is going to you know, it's, it's not um uh, vulnerable to legal, legal challenge. And in fact, you know, Stephen Miller, just the, you know, terrible yes. um, White House aide to, uh, to President uh, Trump, who was responsible for a lot of his really awful immigration policies. You know, he started a 501c4, um, you know, after 2020, and um, he has been driving these lawsuits. And he basically declared victory when this came out, like, uh, we got, um, you know, it's no longer, you know, directed towards African-American farmers. And so I think it's it's actually going to happen. Um, it leaves in its wake an incredible amount of frustration and um, and dissatisfaction among a lot of black farmers. Um, but sure. I leave, you know, thinking that it's probably the best that could be done. I mean, this is something that, um, you know, if if these um, these rulings had been appealed and had gone to the Supreme Court, it's very easy to see that the current Supreme Court 
siding with these these Absolutely. people. And, you know, it's just, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, Katie. Like if you want to, um, yeah. like to haul out, you know, just some farmer from Missouri who feels like he, he or she has been, um, some, you know, white farmer from Missouri who claims to have been discriminated against. You can go on the Environmental Working Group website and just look up how many subsidies they've gotten over the years. <laughs> yeah, and, I know, right? And, and, you know, there's also a lot of great research on, um, you know, basically how the USDA farm programs, I mean, now I'm talking about not just loans, but, you know, subsidies, right? Payments, subsidies, yes, absolutely. Conservation programs. These are all captured by white farmers at a rate of something like 97, 98, 99%. Um, so it's just a ludicrous case that this little pot of $5 billion, um, right. you know, is somehow discriminating against, uh, you know, my favorite thing was Fox News did a, um, did a piece, a segment at this farm in Missouri, and it, it was this couple, and they were just complaining about how they were being, um, you know, uh, pushed out of this, and they're literally standing behind these giant combines, like worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. Um, and just talking about how abused they are, and I, I did for one of my pieces go into the EWG site and just show like these these people are no stranger to government support. Let me tell you right. that. I know they love the government. They love the government as long as it's you know paying them, and they hate the government telling them anything that they should do in order to acquire those payments. But anyway, let's, yeah. we we got a lot to cover here, so I want to I want to talk for a second about uh, ethanol. Um, because it appears uh, that we're going to be upping the ante on ethanol, um, and this, uh, you, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start raising, uh, we're gonna raise the amount of ethanol in a gallon of gas from ten percent to fifteen percent. And oh you and I have talked a lot about how ethanol is not the answer to our energy issues, and that there's you know this whole uh, ancillary program that is of carbon capture and building pipelines through people's farms and stuff like that. We've covered that kind of stuff. But like, I mean, more corn is not what we need here. So, I mean, when, uh, when are we, when are we going to see the light here? And then you also mentioned in your piece, the 45Q tax break, which is particularly egregious in my mind. So let's talk for just a second about that. And then we'll, oh then we'll move on I to mean, universal lunch. I, I, I just get so mad about this case. <laughs> I mean, it's so oh, it's, it's, an, it's an unbelievable story. It really is. I mean, you know, like, let's just take a big picture look. Um, we can all agree, or at least most of us can agree, that we have to get off of fossil fuels. Right. And that, that means transitioning to an electric um, transportation system. Right. And whether that's electric cars, I think we should really invest a lot in uh, rapid transit that's electric driven, try to get people away from cars as much as possible. But we're, we're, cars are with us. We're going to need to transition to electric cars. Um, and so where does ethanol fit into that? Because ethanol is basically an appendage to gasoline. Right. Like, no one's talking about 100% um, ethanol. It's either 10% or 15% of the mix is ethanol. And, um, and so it's just, you know, basically an appendage to gasoline. It's not getting us anywhere. There's been a lot of uh, incredible studies recently um, and uh, I know I know you've had her on your show before, um, Leah Douglas, who oh, writes yeah. for Reuters, just did an extraordinary piece uh, about two weeks ago um, about how just how much carbon emissions is generated at 
ethanol plants. They That's right. Of, they generate an amazing amount of carbon. And when you look at the whole life cycle, it turns out that ethanol is not even less greenhouse gas intensive than gasoline. It's just, right. How could it be? It's a, mean, it, yeah, it's just a loser. I mean, the whole, the whole from, from seed to, to harvesting, just, you know, that amount of corn, like the amount of pesticides, the amount of herbicides, the amount of fertilizer, the amount of water involved, and then all of the gas that it takes to plant and harvest it, and then all the energy it takes to convert it to ethanol. I mean, this is just a giant giveaway to the corn industry. I mean, these people, you know, and it, and it does not improve fuel efficiency by any stretch. No, no, so, in fact, in fact, we should say that um, a gallon of ethanol contains two-thirds the energy of a gallon of gasoline. Right. And so we are reducing, um, you know, we're, we're re reducing mileage when we, when we use ethanol. And, there you, you know, go. we definitely need to use less, less gasoline. The way to do that is not to replace the gasoline with ethanol. It's to use, just to use less gas, gasoline, period. Right. Have a hybrid um, car. Have, a, have an electric car. I mean, that's yeah. the direction. It's just there's no... There's no arguing with that logic, and yet somehow our nation is unable to get out from under uh, these industry giants who control our politics. It's it's and, sad. Yeah, and, you, and then you got you know you got the Biden administration who understands this, who is you know pushing as hard as they can, right? The transition to electric vehicles, but it, the same administration have... is also. <laughs> Like you said, the EPA is about to raise this um, ceiling to 15% for ethanol. And you have Tom um, Vilsack, who's telling them what to do. And, and Joe Tom Manchin. Vilsack is, yeah, he's a, a, you know, just a huge enthusiast for ethanol. Joe Manchin doesn't care about ethanol because Joe Manchin knows that it doesn't pose any threat to the fossil fuel industry. So he's willing to sign off on it. Um, but yeah, it's just this, these contradictory policies that right. if you if you talk to any um, anyone who can take it all a big picture look, just sort of get your head out of the corn belt and just sort of go one level above that and look at the whole <laughs> system. Yeah. You, you see that ethanol is a total loser, and that we need to be transitioning away from it um, and right. not doubling down and on not, it. Exactly. But of course, we're doubling down on it. Yeah, we are. So let's let's move on. We you you're going to come back. We'll talk about this again. Um, no universal free lunch, which was so successful during the pandemic. Uh, I don't understand how this serves the national interests. So I wanted you to talk for just a second about the correlation between adequate nutrition for you know underserved or low income kids and better educational outcomes. I mean, what did the universal free lunch cost that program? Um, um, what are, what you know compare that to the giveaways to corporations in Wall Street like the carried interest loophole, which is going to cost us billions of dollars more than a universal free lunch program. Yeah, I mean it's it's really pretty shocking actually. Um, oh, I, I, it's, it's unconscionable. Yeah, so. The numbers I came up with were that the you know the CBO Congressional Budget Office they figured that extending the, um, universal free lunch would have cost about six hundred and fifty million dollars, not billion, million dollars, less right. than a billion dollars annually. Um, just as an example that I put in there that I thought was pretty poignant, um, Senator Cinema out of Arizona. Let's not even talk about her um, any right. more than we have to. <laughs> um, but, you know, she hates 
taxing rich people. That's one right. of her things. Yes. And there was an attack. There was an attempt to close this loophole in the tax code that literally hedge fund managers and private equity managers benefit from. Yes. Um, and it cost the treasury about $1.4 billion a year. And oh so God. basically, if they had if they had kept that in there, it's called the carried interest, interest loophole, loophole. Yeah, or, or carried interest it, something. I forget. Yeah, car- yeah, carried interest loophole. Let's call it. It would have it would have um, benefited the, the U.S. Treasury to the to the point of one point four billion dollars a year. In other words, it could have funded twice what it would have cost for universal free lunch. Right. Uh, so absolutely stupid. Um, literally, that is literally taking food out of the mouth mouths of kids and yep. putting it into the bank, you know, sort of converting it into money and putting it into the bank accounts of these filthy of this, rich people. I mean, it, right. I mean, come on. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about the current system and why I think universal free is so important. So um, as most people will know, we have a, a system now in public schools where there's three tiers. You get, you pay full price, right? you get a reduced price, or you get free lunch. And to qualify for free lunch, you have to show your family makes a certain low level of income, that maybe there's some government programs that you already qualify for. And that creates this incredible stigma. And you know, yes. this has been going on since I was a kid. I'm 55 oh, sure. years old. When I was in public schools in the uh, 70s and 80s, it was, it was the same thing. Yep. And so, you know, the, the free lunch kids I didn't stigmatize them, but we knew who they were. Oh, like, oh yes. yeah, the guy doesn't have to pay. And it's just, you know, horrific for those kids. Um, we've seen, um, you know, this didn't happen when I was a kid, but we've seen this uh, thing of lunch shaming. And that's, yep. that, that's kids who are on the reduced program who don't have money to pay it. And so they're, you know, their cafeteria and their school just lets them go through. Um, but it's, you know, building up a ledger of debt every time they do it. That's right. And then, and then you know, sending their, their parents threatening letters and then giving them special lunches that are different from everyone else that are really basic. Here's what you get uh, because you have debt. I mean, it's just Oh, it's, it's, un, it's incredible. It, you know, it's a sign of a, a very cruel society. Oh, um, absolutely. We had an incident here in Warwick, Rhode Island, about a year and a half ago, uh, in which, um, you know, there was a huge amount of lunch debt. And the guy who runs Chobani heard about this on the news, and he paid the debt for every single family. He just paid yeah. the school. And it was, I mean, it brought the whole system sort of into stark relief for, you know, the American consumer, uh, especially for, you know, middle-class people who probably don't have any awareness of this. Um, but it really made it clear that this is just not something you can do. I mean, the kids who were on the reduced lunch who had debt were getting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and that was it. And a, yeah, car, and, and a bottle of water. I mean, it was like really, you know, not nutritious food, not enough food. Um, you know, it was just, it was disgusting. And let me ask you this. Do you have any sense of a way, has anyone figured out a way to calculate the loss of earning potential for kids who are going hungry because they don't qualify for free lunch or uh, can't access free lunch? I am confident that kind of research has happened, um, but I can't cite any. But I, I do know that there is a lot of good research about the level of quality, you know, the sort of quality level of lunch and learning attainment, um, right. educational achievement. There's yep. really solid research on that. So this is, 
this is something that's been studied and, you know, this investment of an extra, you know, less than a billion dollars a year would deliver benefits to society. But, you know, I want to bring up another aspect of it because okay. um, I went to um, my beloved elementary school, Pecan Springs Elementary School in Northeast Austin in 2019. <laughs> I, I visited there and I did a podcast segment for the late and lamented Bite podcast. Oh. And um, so Austin, it turns out, Austin has this really progressive, smart lunch director director named Annalise Tanner. And um, she's just um, really, really good at, you know, figuring out how to get the best quality food on the table for these public school kids. And, um, and so she was utilizing this program where you can get an entire school to be to have universal free lunch if it meets certain criteria of, you know, income level of the student, if a certain number of the students, their families come from low income levels, you can get the entire school to have universal free lunch. So it's basically a pilot program for just making lunch, you know, universally free everywhere. And, um, and so one of the things I learned from Annalise was that when the, the district, when the cafeteria has universal free lunch, that brings a lot more resources into the cafeteria like the amount of money, because a lot of kids will, you know, if they have they'll a, skip lunch, if they have to skip lunch, lunch or whatever. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so what she found was in the schools like Pecan Springs, which uh, has a very high African-American population, Hispanic population, uh, very, very high poverty levels around there. And, you know, it's one of those cases where you think of Austin as like this booming tech town with all these rich people, but there's massive inequality in a place like Austin. Yeah. And there's a lot of flight of rich people from public schools into private schools. And so you get this remainder public school system that's pretty low on resources and has a high, high rates of poverty. And so what she found was that in her schools where she's able to get universal free lunch, they have more resources. They're able to buy better quality stuff. They're, better, they're, right. they're able to pool their resources and buy from local farmers. And they're able to make lunches that just taste a whole lot better. Right. And, um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I was joking with her about how, you know, we would have stuff like Salisbury steak, which is basically, you know, basically kind of a mystery meat yes. or, you know, reheated frozen pizza, stuff like that. And we didn't think so much of the school lunches back then. But she is serving like decent, humane food, like, a, you know, a very well done burrito is what, what, what we had on the day that I went there. It was like nice. nice carrots and kids were actually eating it. This is like, you know, uh, I think it was fifth graders who were eating it on the, um, on the day that I was there. In, Fantastic. In and uh, and there's no concept of lunch shaming. There's no there's not this uh, three tiered system. And when someone like that, who's got her aesthetic of. Let, you know, let's bring quality to the fore here and not just try to cut costs. Um, you can get, you know, the start of a decent school lunch system in the United States. Um, and so I was really excited during the pandemic when they moved to Universal Free. And it's just so disappointing that even with the Democrats having the presidency in the House and the Senate, barely, that we can't get universal free lunch through. I mean, it's just um, mind boggling. It is mind boggling and it is incredibly short-sighted. I mean, if we don't want to sort of drop into, um, I don't, I don't want, I, you know, I, I don't want to degrade other countries, but you know, we're basically lowering our national IQ 
by failing to serve children adequate nutrition. It's literally that simple. And, you know, we already have a crappy uh, educational system as far as I'm concerned. We've been starving it for the last 60 years and uh, or 50 years since Reagan, basically. I, everything is Reagan's fault. But you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. really, how low do we need to go in this country before we realize that we have made these massive policy blunders and that, you know, feeding the rich and starving the poor is not the answer? We got to take a short break here. We'll be right back with Tom Philpot. Um, we're going to talk about this incredible... Um, tripling of funding for the partnerships for climate smart commodities and we're going to unpack what all of that means so stay tuned we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by root 11 potato chips from the moment root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992 they understood their destiny as a high quality producer Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Okay, so um, I was reading through the state-by-state -state breakdown of these projects. This is, for those who haven't really followed this, this is a USDA program, administered program, absolutely huge. It was originally slated for like $1.2 something like that, Tom. And then yeah. it was tripled to over $3 billion because there were so many applications for programs or, or um, I don't know, what do they want to call this? Uh, you know, partnerships. Um, you know, the interest was so enormous uh, across the United States that uh, it was, they decided to award them a lot more money than, than they had originally. So I'm reading through these state-by-state -state breakdown, which everybody can do. You can go, you know, look up this Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities. You'll go to the USDA website and then you can pop onto the list of how each state, um, what each state is going to be participating in and what is important. So, of course, I looked right away at the state of Iowa because Iowa is, you know, drowning in hog waste, drowning in agrochemicals, uh, stripped of topsoil and has dwindling water supplies. These are all issues that, you know, uh, you know, just definitely uh, have an impact on our climate overall. Um, <clears throat> hog waste is an enormous emitter of greenhouse gases and VOCs, as we all know. So I didn't see one single thing that addressed hog waste. But what I did see was the following, and I'm going to read it to you. The National Pork Board is the lead partner. Uh, is advancing U.S. pork sustainability and market value proposal. The goal of this project is to increase the sustainability of U.S. pork products by advancing climate-smart agriculture practices within the feed supply, thereby maintaining market demand and price premiums in a rapidly evolving consumer world. Uh, so what this looks like to me... Um, and this this also goes to Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri, all three of those states, which are very much involved in pork production uh, and the produce, production of corn and soy, the two primary feed ingredients for any hog uh, thing. And um, so the, the major partners of the National Pork Board, Nestle, uh, Sustainable Environmental Consultants, Ducks Unlimited, Trust in Food, which is the Farm Journal, of which about which I'd love to talk to you off the air. Okay. Um, 
Farm Credit Council, Milbourne Seed, um, and the major commodities affected are pork, rice, soybeans, and corn. This is a $20 million uh, funding for this Climate smart agriculture practices within the feed supply. First of all, before we get to this, I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. What do they mean by climate smart commodities? We're talking about like how how do you make farming corn, soy, pork, rice climate smart? Uh, you know, like can you break that down for me? I- I mean, what this is, and we're going to be seeing a lot of this going forward, is a major effort to get the status quo renamed as sustainable or climate smart. Right. Um, and so basically to um, to take current practices, which are um, extremely destructive, as you mentioned, and sort of market them as sustainable. Now, what I'm guessing is happening here is you know the, the feed supply chain for the pork industry is corn and soybeans right and i'm guessing it's throwing a little bit of money at stuff like cover crops and um you know strips of prairie grass where you know soil's going to erode where it erodes mm-hmm. every year um, these marginal things that are beneficial at the margin, but they're not going to stop the huge problems that are going on in that area, which include, as you mentioned, water, you know, water pollution by just excessive amounts of hog manure getting dropped onto land and not being able to, uh, they're putting so much on it, it doesn't soak up, over application of fertilizers, um, over application of other pesticides and stuff like that, that get into the water and make the water in that area a total nightmare. There yeah. may be some very marginal improvements um, in that stuff, but it is not changing the overall uh, equation. But what it is doing is putting the USDA stamp on it as climate smart and, you know, lining some folks' pockets with uh, with this $20 million. It really isn't right. going to be doing much. And I think that the broad context for this, Katie, um, I did a piece last year on um, – this uh, so in European Union is doing this thing called what is it called? They they uh, they have a thing called the Farm to Fork Strategy in the European Union, and yes. what what they're trying to do is say, okay, we know we need to use less fertilizer and less agrochemicals. Let's create some targets um, and you know mandate some cuts by a certain date and see how it goes. And, you know, if you tell me, if I'm a farmer and you tell me that I have to decrease my fertilizer use by 40%, that could, you know, over over time, that could unleash a lot of really interesting innovation. Okay, well, I can't use, I have to cut down on fertilizer. Maybe if I add another legume to my crop rotation, um, I'll I'll fix some nitrogen that way. Fix more nitrogen in the soil, right, right. Yeah. And uh, instead of just doing corn and soybeans, I'll do corn soybeans and you know I don't know alfalfa mixed with um, you know oats. hay or something like yeah, right. yeah oats or something like that. Um, and you know maybe because it'll be more efficient, I'll um, I'll rotate some cows onto my pasture and they can essentially harvest this cover crop by just eating it and deposit their manure in the land and so instead of like having giant feedlots. 
Um, mm-hmm. We'll have maybe fewer animals and we'll, you know, put them back on the land where we know that they can um, actually uh, make a positive difference. Um, and so it would, you know, that kind of that, that kind of strategy, I mean, it can be done very badly, but it could also be done well in a way that incentivizes um, people to innovate and come up with new systems that use less of these chemicals. Sure. Well, Bill Sack gets word of this and he's freaked out and he's basically like, no, we cannot <laughs> support that. We're not going to do it. And he, you know, starts this movement of other countries who are going to band together and say, we're not going to do, you know, do the farm to fork strategy. We're going to not regulate at all. We're going to get to net zero in all these other ways. And um, I just thought it was hilarious. The countries that he was able to get um, on board with this strategy. You mean like, I don't know, North Korea. Okay. Well, you got Brazil. Saudi Arabia. You, you got, well, yeah, not, not too far. Uh, you got Brazil, um, sure. which has oh, completely right. given over to industrial scale agriculture. Absolutely. Uh, where yeah. the pesticide and fertilizer companies run the roost, um, where they're literally, you know, the right wing government is literally kicking indigenous people off of land. Burning um, the rainforest as fast as they can. Yeah. They're, they're eating up the rainforest. They're eating up the savanna, which is incredibly biodiverse and has lots of carbon in it. So that's one of our partners. Another one is United Arab Emirates. Of um, course. You know, that ag powerhouse that imports, you know, some huge portion of its food because it's literally in a desert. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, this speaks to one of the lines in this where it says, thereby maintaining market demand yes. and price premiums. To me, that was the critical piece of that particular yeah. entry, was it wasn't about addressing climate issues by any means. It was about yeah. maintaining market demand by kind of greenwashing, you know, whatever it is that they're going to do. I was just going to say, it wasn't even making a claim like this will cut carbon emissions by 10%. Like right. that's our goal. Our oh. goal is to maintain market demand and uh, and get a price premium. And good other prices. Words, put more money into these companies' pockets. Here's another one that just blew my mind. And then, you know, for people who were listening earlier, it goes back to the discussion we had about ethanol. The GEVO, GEVO, whatever that means, Climate Smart Farm to Flight Program, this project aims to create critical structural market incentives for low carbon intensity uh, corn I don't know what that is, as well as to accelerate the production of sustainable aviation fuel to reduce the sector's dependency on fossil-based fuel. This project concludes includes an immediate market opportunity to sell climate-smart, low-climate-impact corn. Uh, so the lead partner is GIVO. I guess that's an agro, you know, biz, a corn biz. And the major partner is Southwest Iowa Renewable, Google, Farmer's Edge, Earth Optics, South Dakota State University, uh, Yardstick, WH Ag Services, Ag Spire, Prairie Food, it goes on and on. Um, and then that gets $30 million, and the major commodity is corn. Have we not right. established <laughs> right. that corn is not the answer? We're not going right. to be able to fly freaking planes on corn. I'm sorry. I mean, it's I don't know what this low-carbon-intensity corn is. I've never heard of that before, but I, I'm guaranteeing you that this is never going to fly. Forgive the yeah. pun. I mean, <laughs> the idea of, of ethanol as aviation fuel is sort of like the next frontier 
because as we, you know, everyone agrees that, you know, U.S. per capita, per capita gasoline demand is going down. Um, there is a very probable EV revolution, electric vehicle revolution right. about to happen. And so they know that they have got to figure out another story uh, besides, right. you know, ethanol is great for your car. And right. so they are dangling on the horizon that by some technological breakthrough, ethanol can somehow become um, an aviation fuel. And, you know, there's some big obstacles because as I was saying before, a gallon of, of ethanol has about two thirds the energy in a gallon of gasoline. There you go. And aviation fuel has got to be really dense. And, yeah. and so it's just sort of like figuring out some technology to make this stuff denser and more energy rich. And, um, and you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to getting aviation off of fossil fuels. Uh, you know, I've read articles that suggest that maybe electric aviation might be viable at some point. Um, but I highly doubt the answer is going to be corn-based ethanol. I mean, it's just it, it's just not. Um, and I, and I think people know that. I think you know. I, I don't think this is something that is like this great revelation. But I think the industry is pretending like, oh, you know, don't worry about when EVs take over because we'll have this whole other huge market of aviation biofuel. But I, I think it's just a total fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I, it's certainly not anything that you and I are going to see in our lifetimes, I, I don't think. Um, and yeah. if we have enough soil, topsoil left to grow enough corn <laughs> to power engines, oh we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything else. I mean, we won't be growing any animals because we won't. I mean, I just the whole thing just is, I, you know, just it's. It shocked me. I'm going to say that. And then one more I wanted, and then uh, we'll, we can talk sort of about some of the better parts of this program. I mean, there were some great things in this. Um, there was a lot of money for organics and for, you know, what they call sustainable beef production. I have no idea what they mean by that. Um, but anyway, uh, but my my last one was uh, Climate Smart, which is, which is an acronym for Scaling Mechanisms for agriculture's regenerative transformation. Uh -huh. This project, yeah, right. This project will reach across 28 states and aims to catalyze a self-sustaining market-based network to broaden farmer access, scale adoption of climate smart practices, and this was highlighted in my, I highlighted this, sustainably produce grain and dairy commodities with verified and quantified climate benefits. The price tag on this one is $90 million. Um, I, first of all, want to know what, you know, who is verifying, who is quantifying, and how are they doing it? I mean, we can't even figure out how to measure carbon capture, like with the old cap and trade boondoggle, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. you know, like all of this stuff, these, I read through these things. I'm just like, wow, who wrote this? Because <laughs> none of it seems real to me. I mean, I just, I don't understand. Like, it's not, you know, these words, it's word salad to yeah. me. I mean, honestly, you know, self-sustaining market-based network to broaden farmer access. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> It is very Vilsack. I think we can we can agree on that. Yeah. And when you start talking about dairy, um, and this is also probably true, uh, not the program you mentioned about about um, about hogs and their feed stream, right? But when you start talking about dairy and meat, 
um, you, it doesn't take long for you to start getting into the whole thing about methane digesters. Right. Sure. And so, you know, these are obviously dairy and, and, um, and hog production are very methane intensive. And a big reason for that is the giant amount of manure that gets captured in these lagoons and then it's sprayed on fields. And, um, and so the industry answer, Tom Vilsack loves this is okay. Instead of having one lagoon, bear with me here, have two lagoons. And over the first lagoon, we'll put a, you know, tarp, essentially, like a, a cover yeah. oh, I over see it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll um, harvest the methane from this. So we'll go into the natural gas stream. And then once that's done, we'll take that manure and pipe it over into the next lagoon that is open pit, just like it always used to be. And we will um, spread that manure. We'll way over apply that manure on the land and create all kinds of problems. And um, and so they act like it's the solution because you're taking the methane and you know sort of upcycling it. You're burning it as a um, as a energy source, which does you know that's better than letting it um, drift off into the atmosphere of as methane, which is a very hot you know heat trapping greenhouse gas. But the um, the problem is that you've concentrated the manure that's left over. It's got higher levels of ammonia. It's yes. um, e- even stinkier because you've concentrated it, yeah. And um, it's cre- it's you know maintaining all of these problems that it has, that it gives communities who live nearby these things when you know when they're spraying this stuff and they're over applying it, it gets into water, it gets into it literally the mist from it, it gets into people's homes. Um, yeah, all manner of health issues. Absolutely, oh, it's very very dangerous. All stuff. manner of problems, respiratory issues. And then, and then there is this whole thing with, you know, basically when you capture that methane, what you do, what you do is you purify it, and then it's essentially the same as natural gas, and it goes into the natural gas stream. Yeah. Um, and that sounds great. It sounds like, oh, you know, we're we're taking this thing that was a, a heat trapping gas with thirty times the um, heat trapping power of carbon, and turning it into natural gas so we can burn. Um, but the problem is that we know that we need to to burn a lot less natural gas. And natural gas yes. is not just benign fuel. Um, there are methane leaks at every um, you know part of the production process. Methane is a really big greenhouse gas emitter, um, and so it is maintaining this reliance on natural gas at the very minute that we're trying to get off of natural gas. Yeah. And it also, you know, they, they can call it then sustainable natural gas. And right, you know, this, right. this, um, you know, um, uh, power generating facility uh, gets 10% of its power from sustainable natural gas. And this sort of greenwashes the whole operation. That's right. Um, and, and so, you know, in the end, I think that it's basically a climate loser and it's terrible for the communities. And Tom Vilsack is a big uh, proponent of these methane digesters. And I think a lot of this stuff is going to come down to subsidies to create, you know, to convince farmers to put these digesters in. And, you know, it's when, when a dairy executive like Vilsack was before he became um, USDA sure. chief again, when they say we're going to get to net zero by 2050, what they mean is we're going to have methane digesters on every dairy. Um, and it's just not a great situation. And, you it's, know, Smithfield is doing this, the giant pork company is doing this in Eastern North Carolina. They've got a project brewing 
to, you know, put methane digesters in these giant CAFOs that are in African-American yep. communities that are causing all kinds of environmental injustice issues, um, sure. essentially putting lipstick on a, on a pig. That, that's a little bit on the nose of a metaphor or cliche, but I'll... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm down with that one. I think that works really well in this case. Well, we should probably wrap this up. We've gone a bit over time. I hope people have been able to sustain that. You know, like I know we should all appreciate the fact that, you know, we're supporting that agriculture is on the table, that people are talking about ways to try to improve it. And, you know, there was some good money in there for, I guess, good projects. I'm not really, frankly, uh, educated enough to totally understand it. But I, you know, I was disappointed that I didn't see uh, any money that, you know, went towards things like re-regionalizing food systems or building a more robust supply chain, expanding local processing, distribution, the things that would cut down, like materially cut down on fossil fuel use uh, because you're not transporting food by, you know, thousands of miles and would uh, reduce water consumption for the same, you know, all of that stuff. And, and it would make us less vulnerable to supply chain disruption from, you know, weather events or pandemics, for instance. Um, so I just, you know, it's just like sad to me that we're taxpayers are funding these massive influxes of money to essentially prop up industries that are, you know, making enormous profits uh, at the expense of all the rest of us. And that's very discouraging, um, particularly, uh, you know, given that we are really at this kind of critical moment in, in our in our history, uh, in our evolution as, as humans on the planet. So, right. Anyway. I mean, as, we're, as we're recording this, the, um, massive storm hit the coast of Alaska and yeah. caused all kinds of flooding and damage. Oh, the massive, did you see the photographs of the of the typhoon in Japan? Ma I mean, massive, oh my God. Massive storm hit Puerto Rico, the yep. country's without power yet again. Um, you know, some huge portion of Pakistan is underwater. Under, that's right. Um, and this is the kind of dithering we're doing with climate policy in the United States. It's pretty disappointing. It's pretty disappointing. Well, on that note, and I hate to be a Debbie Downer here, but that's that's what it is, folks. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Come back soon. Uh, there's always It's always a great fun to talk to you. You're so knowledgeable. I really appreciate your time. Um, we'll see you next week, folks. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks to my sponsors. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.